One of the people that they highlighted was a man by the name of Steve Wozniak. Now, some of us in this room might be familiar with that name. Some of us may not be. But Steve Wozniak uh, is one of the co-founders of Apple Computers. And he is considered by many to be the man who first designed the personal computer. And uh, he is, uh, in this commercial, he says this. He, he says, its effect, talking about the computer's effect on society, really came about not because I wanted one for myself, which I did, but it's because I had a passion. My whole life, I wanted to teach myself to build computers. I wanted to build these things for free. I just wanted to do it for the world. And when you want something, that's what you do the best. As I, as I heard that commercial, and I heard it a few different times, I, I kept thinking about what he said. I did it for the world. And I thought, you know, here's a man that did something for, for computers, and computers are everywhere now. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, go back 50 years ago, 60 years ago, people were like, oh, that computer fad, that'll pass away. And now it's everywhere. I remember even reading uh, an article from a 1945 or 1950 um, Scientific American or something along that line. They were talking about in the future computers, because they were so large, if you remember right, will only take up two city blocks. Because that's how they, they were so massive. And now you can fit a computer in your pocket or on your watch. It's unbelievable. I mean, we have them everywhere. We have them in our homes, in our businesses, in our, in, in, in our schools, in our colleges, even all over the world. People are using it. I love the fact that I can get on my, my, uh, my, my phone and I can text my friend in Uganda real time of what's going on. We're having a conversation. No longer do we send letters across the seas We have computers right here that have helped change and transform our lives. Now, I think about that. I think about how computers have transformed our lives. And I think, you know, even though computers have done so much, the gospel does so much more. The gospel transforms our lives, and we do it for the sake of the world. And he was a world changer. He had that world in mind. And that's what Paul had. Even Christ had that. I was uh, seeing the, the, the movie that came out last year, Son of God, that came out. And it, was talk, uh, it has Jesus in this interaction and scene with Peter. And when he, takes, he goes out uh, with Peter on the boat and he tells him to cast his nets over. And Peter is overwhelmed. And he says, because uh, Jesus says, come and follow me. And he goes, what are we going to do? And he, and he has that one line, to change the world. And I love that. And that's what God has called us to partner with him in doing, is change the world, one person at a time. And it, what does that look like? See, Paul understood that. Jesus had called him to a task to help change the world, had called him out of darkness. He'd been a Jewish rabbi. He'd gone to the most prized Jewish schools. He was a persecutor of his church. And yet Jesus revealed himself to him, His life is transformed, and then he goes on a mission, partnering with God to change the world. And God uses him to write this letter to the church at Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he's he's encouraging this fledgling church on how to live in such a way to change the world. And today we're going to see what it takes for us to be world changers, for us to make a difference in the lives of those around us. So I would encourage you to, to buckle up, to listen in and see what God has for us as we jump into this very important and wonderful text. But before we go any further, let's pray for God's blessing on our message time. Father God, we come into your presence today asking you to speak to us. Lord, we claim the promise within your word that says that your word will accomplish every purpose for which you have intended it. 
And Lord, I pray that your word will not return void as you have promised. That it might cut us. That it might be that surgeon's scalpel cutting out the cancer of sin and unbelief. That we might go forth changed for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right in. We're going to look at our text. We start off in verse 2. Uh, and I noticed as I was hearing it, um, even though I think we're, many of us are in the same version, uh, the English Standard versions apparently differ in between certain years. So we start off in verse 2, and we'll see this as we go. I just want to make you aware of that if something seems different. But I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, we want, if we want to, the, to change the world and we want the world to know Jesus, how preeminent, how, how he should be first place in their life, then it requires us, first of all, using God's tools for transformation, specifically God's tool for transformation. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is powerful. Indeed, it can bring down strongholds, governments. Remember when the, the communist government tried to outlaw Christianity, make atheism a state, state religion, and they wanted to eradicate, eradicate Christianity? They persecuted the church. The church went underground. But you know what? People continued to pray. People continue to pray. Grandmothers with their babushkas were praying for their children and teaching them by the cradle. And that's actually what many missiologists, people who study mission and what's going on in the world, they said the survival of the church is attributable, I mean, attributed to God working through those grandmothers. And these ladies were praying and praying for their children and praying for the fallen people in the United States. I remember growing up in the 80s and hearing of people praying, praying that God would work. And it brought down strongholds. Prayer is a powerful, powerful tool. And yet we don't use it. Why? We don't use it. Why don't we use it? See, I'm reminded of, of John Piper, pastor. He used to be pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. He's, uh, he is a founder of a ministry called Desiring God, a great man. Um, I have a great uh, a lot of respect for him. And he said this, and I've shared this before, but he says, prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls on God for courage. It calls in for troop deployment and target location. It calls in for protection and air cover. It calls in for firepower to blast open a way for the word. That's this passage we're looking at today. It calls in for the miracle of healing. God heals. God heals, by the way. Now, he doesn't heal everyone, but he does heal. Healing for the wounded soldiers. It calls in for supplies for the forces. It calls in needed reinforcements. This is the place of, of prayer on the battlefield of the world. It is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. And one of the reasons it malfunctions in the hands of so many Christian soldiers is that they have gone AWOL. Do we pray? Do we realize how God values prayer? Look at verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly. The word actually, uh, continue steadfastly, is actually one in Greek. And it's a present imperative active. It's a command. It means to adhere to, persist in, to busy oneself in, to busily engage in, to be devoted to. It's a command to pray. If we're to understand God's tool of transformation, we have to understand that it involves 
following God's command. This is not optional. This is not something for super Christians. This is where you could say, well, I don't feel like it. It's a command. He's saying, continue steadfastly. I want you to pray. Not because I I don't love you. It's because I do love you. I want you to communicate with me. I want you to pray and seek my face. Why? Well, there are several reasons. He wants what is best for us. And by commanding us to pray, he is commanding us to seek him. Because he wants us, he wants to give himself to us. He also knows that we're very susceptible to temptation. As Jesus said in Matthew 26, 48, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, he wants us to avoid sin by giving us himself. And he wants, us to, he wants to work on our behalf. But we're just too dense, faithless, and disobedient to see it. See, we need to continue steadfastly. Paul understood that prayer requires commitment. That's what it means. Continue steadfastly. Be devoted to it. It's going to require commitment. It's going to require commitment. Now, prayer can take many forms. There are some times where it means getting on your face in front of God, away from everybody else, for a long period of time. There are other times where the moment you don't have it in that moment, you could be facing a thing with your boss, you could be in an argument with your spouse, you could be going through something, uh, a moment of temptation. Those are impromptu prayers where you, th- you, you give it up to God. I think of Nehemiah, right before he goes into the presence of Xerxes the king. He says, Lord, grant me, grant me you know, basically grace in the presence of this man. He doesn't have a long, drawn-out moment of intercession. It's one moment there. And, and prayer takes on many different forms, but it requires commitment. It's not easy. Prayer is not easy, as Oswald Chambers once said. He said, some people say, pray for the work, but prayer is the work. It's work. It's hard. When you get down on your knees, you close, you close everything around you, your mind begins to wander. You have to focus. You have to start praying and thinking the words of Scripture. You can even pray through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, I want to see your name hallowed throughout the entire world. Your will be done. You start thinking that. Lord, what is your will? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to be? What do you want to accomplish in the world? See, that focuses our prayers. And it's hard because sometimes we have those things, those come in, those distractions, and we have to to focus our mind and bring it back because prayer is work. See, real prayer takes commitment. Paul tells us to be watchful in it. Watchful in it. And it's interesting. The word watchful, it's, um, it's a present act of participle. And it means to be awake, to stay awake, to be watchful, to be vigilant. It's just as Jesus was praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells them to stay awake and pay attention. And every time he comes back, they're snoozing. He's like, come on. Can't you watch me? This is the most important time. And you're failing. Can't you just watch for me a little bit? Can't you pray? We need to make sure that we are being watchful, being vigilant of what God is doing. And we we have to remove the distractions. Turn off your phone. Close your computer. Turn off the TV. Remove it. We busy, I believe that we busy ourselves, not because we're really busy. I mean, we are. I think we busy ourselves because we're too afraid to be quiet because we're afraid of what God's going to show us about ourselves. I think that's the main thing. We have all these distractions to keep us from seeing the emptiness in our own souls. 
We need to make sure that we are being watchful in it. I was reminded of the power of prayer this past week. Um, many of you know that I've worked with a ministry called Reaching Indian Ministries International, Remy for short. And I've been to India twice. I'm going, Lord willing, again in November. And uh, I, while I was there this last time, I met a, name, uh, met a man by the name of Ganesha Pandi. Now, Dr. Ganesha Pandi has a doctorate of missiology. He's this very small man. Um, and I heard about him when I was in India. Other Indians spoke of him in great kind of reverence and esteem. And this man is a missionary to the Korku peoples in India. And he, he, um, he's working of one of 30 missionaries trying to reach 5 million Korku people. And God called him out of a Hindu background um, from the southern state he lived in to move far to the north. So it's basically like living in Florida, and he moves to Minnesota and almost like that. So he moves all the way up, and just God touches his heart to, to reach these people. He'd gone to, to school. God had provided for him to go to school, and he's working among these Korkus, and God tells him that he needs to take in these orphans. So he and his wife take in orphans, and at the time he had 10, and they had a, about a 10 by 20 parcel of land. That was their home. That was the orphanage. That was everything. One room, no toilets. They had 10 walls, and they had a tarp to be the top of the wall. That was it. And they were, every night they would pray that snakes and scorpions didn't get in to get the children. Okay? They had to walk to go get their food twice a week, three miles, and they could only get enough food that they could carry back for these children. And daily he's prov- praying that God would provide for him. I mean, and he, he was just visiting here, it's, and he even says, it's a miracle of God that I could come to this country and, and meet you. And I invited him to my home, and I felt dirty. Because I, I saw, and, and he didn't feel that way. He was just delighted to be there, and fellowshipping with him, and seeing his dedication, and seeing everything was a miracle of God. Everything was a blessing of God. What faith that he had and the gratitude that came from his heart put me to shame. And he came up to me right before I took him to the airport and he got on his knees and he said, pray for me. And I prayed for him. And then as he turned, I said, no. I got on my knees and I said, you pray for me. You pray for me. Because you, you, you bring great blessing." us. I mean, even as I was sharing, I brought him into the staff and he was sharing. He says, yes, we, we go. And he comes and teaches at the seminary. He takes a bus five hours. He teaches at the seminary for three days. He goes and teaches at another seminary for two days. He takes the bus back five hours to his home and he's working with the children and they get the food. And he also said, oh, we also have to be home before nightfall. I said, why? He goes, so the tigers don't get us. And you can see the, the guys in the room looking at, you know, cell phones. What, tigers? Did you say Tigers? And yet we can't get out of bed to come to church on a Sunday morning. Shame on us. That we are too busy delighting in these other things. This man's battling tigers and snakes and scorpions, and he's walking miles, and we can't get out of bed? That's not faith. That's pathetic. And I think many of this room have been indicted by that fact that our faith is pathetic. It's pathetic. I'm reminded, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. You can turn there if you want to. There's a 102.9. This is Jesus speaking to the church, and I feel like he's speaking to our church. He says this, I know your works. 
You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Wake up. That's for all of us. Wake up, church. People are going to hell all around us. And we're too busy playing around on YouTube that we can't see what God is trying to do in our midst and wants to do in our midst. See, we need to understand the value and the power of prayer, something that what God, the value that God places on prayer. I mean, think about it. The only time that Jesus ever showed anger in his ministry was when? When he cleared the temple. Why? Because they had taken something that had been dedicated to prayer. I mean, and it had been dedicated to prayer for the nations. Matter of fact, it's interesting about Solomon's temple. When Solomon was praying at the dedication of the temple, he, he says this. He prayed that it would be a place where God's name would dwell. I'm going I'm to walk through this prayer that he had in 1 Kings chapter 8. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I'll give you a synopsis. He, he played that it would be a, prayed, excuse me, that it would be a place where God's name would dwell, where God's people could pray, where they would receive judgments. But primarily it was a place for prayer. He prophetically prayed that it would be a place where people could pray for forgiveness of sins. And if the nation of Israel were lost in battle due to sin and were removed from the land because of it, God would restore them if they came to the temple and prayed. If drought came over the land because of sin, it was the temple they were to go to and pray, confessing and repenting of their sin, trusting in the promise that God would bring rain. If there was some type of famine or pestilence that came upon the land, then individuals or the nation as a whole could come and pray for God's intercession and he would act. If a foreigner came to the temple praying in search of the one true God, he would hear so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. And if the nation was going to battle and pray to God for victory, he would grant it. And if the nation were to be removed from the land, and they were to go into captivity to a foreign land, and while in that land expressed remorse and repented, then they were to pray toward their homeland where God manifestly dwelt in his temple, and that he would hear from heaven, forgive them of their sin, and grant them favor in the sight of their captors." See, God had given the place, the temple, to be a place of pure, unhindered prayer, but the temple leaders of Jesus' day had forsaken the practice of prayer for money and traded their integrity for a quick buck and entertainment. Forsaking their roles as stewards of God's house, they were charging pilgrims exorbitant amounts of money in a currency exchange, substituting profiteering for religious devotion. Horrified at such mockery of God, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. His act infuriated the religious authorities. Why? Because they loved money more than they cared about God or people. Jesus cleansed the temple and restored it to a house of prayer, a holy place where man could commune with God. But see, that's not the end of the story. Because see, when Jesus came, it says that he, because he's the very presence of God, he is God's temple incarnate on earth, manifested. And then when he ascended into heaven, God sent his spirit to dwell in us so that we might become what? Holy temples. And what does he want to have happen in the temple? Prayer. Is your temple a holy house of prayer? What is your temple? What is God trying to share and speak to you? 
Let's get back to our text. See, the word for continue steadfastly is a second person plural. Second person plural, meaning it's not for you as an individual, it's for us as a church, which means this involves the whole church. This is not just you, it involves a body of which you are to be a part of. You can't be an anonymous, independent, solo, lone ranger, Christian, by myself, doing my thing, and, and by my, you can't just do that. That's not what the, the church is. It is his bride, it is his body. People are like, oh, I love Jesus, I don't like the church. It's like, as I said before, it's like saying you like me and you don't like my wife, which is usually the other way around, but... We're a whole unit. It comes together. It's to be the church. The church is to be praying for one another. We're to continue steadfastly in prayer as a body, pushing one another, encouraging one another. And I understand that there are many in this room who are saying, whoa, wait a minute, do I have to pray out loud? You have a fear of praying out loud? It's okay. You don't have to pray out loud. To pray with someone, ask someone to pray with them. Say, I don't know what we're going to do. It's going to be a little awkward. But remember, awkward is awesome. Okay, but pray with him. I mean, and it's been cool to see, by the way. And I want to give kudos and, and, and points where points are due. Praying for like Amanda, praying for my mother. Those are miracles of God. And I thank you all for praying, and I pray that we continue to do so. We might partner, not just here as a church. I'm talking about the global church as a whole. And it was great when I when people were praying for my mother, and I was getting people are asking for updates from Uganda, and when we we're praying for Amanda, they were asking for updates from India as the surgery was going on. That's incredible. We need to be doing more aware of that, more of that. God calls us to be watchful in prayer with what? With what? Thanksgiving, right? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we need to give thanks? See, we do it because it completes the blessing. See, it's a conscious aware conscious awareness of blessing. It's a conscious awareness. It puts us in dependence. It shows and reveals a faith and realize that we didn't do this of ourselves. Tim Keller wrote this. I don't think I have this quote on the screen, but he says, Gifts from God that are not acknowledged as such are deadly to the soul because they thicken the illusion of self-sufficiency that leads to overconfidence and sets us up for failure. Hear that again. That's That's profound. Gifts from God that are not acknowledged as such are deadly to the soul because they thicken the illusion of self-sufficiency that leads to overconfidence and sets us up for failure. Brilliant. See, there are times that we need to be reminded of who God is and who we are, and nothing does that better than stopping to thank God. I told you about Dr. Ganesha Pandey, and as we were just praying even for the meal, I felt like I was in the presence of God in a different way than I'd been. And he was just giving thanks. Giving thanks. Thanking for all the blessings. Thank you for being here. Seeing God's hand in so many things. And he was right. God's hand is in it. I just needed to see it. See, the reality is, is we're pretty overconfident. We think that we were born, we think, I mean, all of us think that we, were, we hit triples. The reality is, is we were born on third base. We are blessed. We have so many blessings in our country that we don't even realize. We are beneficiaries of someone else's work, just like my house. Uh, I, I, we purchased a house by God's grace um, just uh, uh, in, in December. And as spring is happening, I'm finding out that there's a lot of landscaping, beautiful landscaping, Lordodendrons, and uh, there's uh, forsythias, and, and I don't even know what, rose bushes, and eualias, and I, I think they make these names up, but uh, cherry trees, and viburniums, and all these beautiful, beautiful plants all around. 
And I could act like I did that. I didn't do any of it. I moved in. I am benefiting from what someone else has done. In this country, we are benefiting what others have done before us. We are recipients of that. The fact that you can read, you are a recipient of a public education. Many in this room are. Not all. Some are coming from other countries, and and you have not had that. But you understand probably more than many of us in this room of the blessings that we have had in this country. And God has blessed us. Why? So we just sit around and get fat? Or we are to use that to make his name furthered all over the world? I mean, we think we're so great when we realize it was just part of it was just our birth. I mean, God loves us. He set his seal upon us, but he loves, he loves the world. And he blesses us, and yet he wants us to seek his name. See, we need to make sure that we are tapping into the power of prayer. That's number two in your notes. Tapping into the power of prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is extremely powerful. As Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. May he open a door for the word. And I think of that. I I can't help but think in my mind, and forgive me, but I think of snow. Why? Because you're driving along, you've ever driven along in snow, and it's coming so fast and so harsh that you can't see the road. And then you're like, what do I do? You're coming along slowly or hazards on, might even pull over the side of the road. I mean, it's just coming like a whirlwind. But then you see a plow coming around the corner and that plow plows away. And what do you do? You pull up right behind that plow. And you ride the tail of that plow because that plow knows where it's blazing a trail. See, that's what prayer is. It blazes a trail for us to go. It gives us opportunity. It puts us on different roads and helps us to see things more clearly. Prayer is powerful, and it blows open a door for the Word. Prayer is powerful. See, that's what prayer does. It contends for others. And see, it opens a door, and, and say, he says, make it, a, as he says here, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. But he says, pray for us. See, it contends for other people, praying for other people. Paul's praying for other people. He's encouraging, praying that their strength may not fail, that they might grow. It contends for others. It's not just you praying for yourself. That's why he says, at the same time, pray for us. It contends for other people. We pray for others. Sometimes we're so selfish in our prayers. Bless me, Lord. Give me, Lord. This is what I want, Lord. God calls us to pray for others. As James 5.16 says, on page 1013 or in your large print, 1291, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now you're like, uh, I'll pray. I might try that. You know what happens when we fail to pray for people? Did you know that that's a sin? To fail to pray for people when you know you should? Yeah. Let's turn to this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. This is Samuel speaking now. Samuel, as we know, is the tra- um, many may not be aware. He's actually a transitional figure in Jewish history. He is between what is known as the judges, who were the kind of rulers of Israel during this time, before the kings. He actually inaugurates the first king in Israel's history. He is known as a prophet. Two books are his, named after him, First and Second Samuel, that chronicles his story as well as King David. 
And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, this is Samuel's farewell address to the nation. And he's saying to them, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. It was a sin for him to cease to pray. Oh, now we get everybody's attention. And you're like, well, how, how do I pray for? How can I pray for so many people? My list gets so long, and then I just go through the list. Vary it up. This is how you do it. Vary it up. So say, like, Monday you pray for uh, missionaries. Tuesday you could pray for family. Wednesday you could pray for people in your workplace. Change it up. Come up with a schedule. Rotate it. You know, but bring some variety. Try to do it various times. It could be in the mornings. Maybe you're best in the mornings. It, it, uh, very rarely are we really good right before we go to bed at night. Very rarely. Some people are night owls, yes, but you need to come up with it right before you go to bed. Do it, do it a different time. Sometimes it means getting alone. In our house, that means getting alone in the shower because so a kid doesn't come in. Okay? You've got to find a place to commune with the Lord. Set aside that time for him. And some people say, well, do my prayers really make a difference? I mean, uh, God has ordained the results, then why do I need to pray? If God knows everything that's going to happen, what's the point of prayer? This is where I love C.S. Lewis, uh, the great um, atheist-turned-Christian professor in England. He really wanted to understand prayer, and he had had a very hard time understanding why we would pray for God to do specific things. And after all, if he said, if God is in charge, isn't prayer simply saying that God doesn't know what he's doing? Shouldn't it be best to assume that he knows best and we simply resign ourselves to that fact? He responds with this. He said, God, he's quoting Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician who happened to be a Christian. He wrote a book called Penzies um, on uh, ministry. He was a Frenchman. But he said, God, said Pascal, instituted prayer in order to lend to his creatures the dignity of causality. Okay, now you might not be familiar with that. It might be some big words. What he's saying there is God allows your prayers to make a difference. The sovereign God is allowing your prayers to influence others and change lives. It's the dignity of causing a difference in people's lives. That's a mystery to us. Because God is great, he's all-knowing, he's sovereign, he's omniscient, meaning he knows all things, he's omnipotent, he has all power, he's omnipresent, he is everywhere, but yet he lends us, creatures made in his image, the dignity of causality. But not only prayer, when we act at all, he lends us that dignity. When we share the gospel, it is not really stranger nor less strange that my prayer should affect the course of events than my other actions should do so. He says, basically, prayer is a lot like just life. He's saying this. He goes, they've not advised or changed God's mind. That is his overall purpose. But that purpose will be realized in different ways according to the actions, including the prayers of his creatures. What he means is this. If I'm at a table with Dennis right here, and I say to Dennis, pass the salt. Will, God, will he not pass the salt? If he, he wouldn't have passed the salt unless I asked, right? It's the same with God. We, if we don't ask, he won't give. If we don't ask, he won't act the same thing. He gives us the dignity of causality. See, prayer contends for others, but it also creates opportunities. It creates opportunities. Look at verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, this mysterion in Greek of Christ on account of which I am in prison. See, God wants us to praise so that there may be more opportunities, more open doors to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
See, we have all encountered closed doors in our lives, which is a metaphor to describe not having a chance, an opportunity. But here Paul is encouraging us to pray for opportunities for us to share the gospel with others. God could do that on his own, but he chooses to use us to ask for open doors. Now, Lewis, aware of this, wrote, For he seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. Meaning that this is Lewis's kind of observation. He's saying that God, God could do whatever he wants to do. He could do it without us. But he chooses to delegate that responsibility to us. He commands us to do slowly uh, what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. He could change a heart in a, in a second. He could save everybody. But he chooses us to tell other people about him, to witness to him, to live for him. He allows us to neglect what he would have us do or to fail. Perhaps we do not fully realize the problem, so to call it, of an enabling finite free wills to coexist with omnipotence, all power. That's what that word means. It seems to involve at every moment almost a sort of divine abdication, right? He's British, so he's talking about abdicating, meaning that it seems that God could do this on his own, and he's not wanting to do it. He's using us to do it. He goes, we are not mere recipients or spectators. We are either privileged to share in the game or compelled to collaborate in the work to wield our little tridents. He's using and borrowing a metaphor from ancient literature, meaning that he's using us to play the game, if you will. Instead of being on the sidelines, watching and clapping, we're on the field. That we're players in this divine drama. Actors on the stage of life, if you will. Sharing the gospel and working out and living out this divine drama of redemption. Creates opportunities. God uses our prayer to change things. To create greater opportunities It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, however. Notice what Paul says, to declare the mystery of a Christ of which I am in prison. Now, it's interesting. He's not praying to be released from prison. Isn't that interesting? He's not saying, God, get me out of this. He's saying, God, help me proclaim the gospel. Give me opportunity to speak the gospel clearly. I'm in prison, but I pray that I might Speak the gospel clearly. He's not asked to be removing out. See, what happens in prayer is it changes our perspective. It changes our perspective. See, he's not saying, get me out of here now. I can't take this. I can't handle it anymore. He's saying, while I'm here, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. Give me opportunity to be clear in the presentation of the gospel for those with whom you have me sharing at this moment. See, it changes our perspective. Tim Keller wrote, writes about this change. He says, when your prayer life finally begins to flourish, the effects can be remarkable. You may be filled with self-pity and be justifying resentment and anger. Then you sit down to pray and the reorientation that comes before God's face reveals the pettiness of your feelings in an instant. All your self-justifying excuses fall to the ground in pieces or you may be filled with anxiety, and during prayer you come to wonder what you were so worried about. You laugh at yourself and thank God for who he is and what he's done. It can be that dramatic. It is the bracing clarity of a new perspective. Very, very true. Or as Oswald Chambers said, he says, we believe that prayer changes things. He goes, that's true, but prayer changes me, and I change things. Very true. Prayer does change things, but it also changes us. 
helps us to see our sin, how petty we really are, how sinful we really are. Changes our perspective. But that's not all. Let's look back at our text for a moment. He says that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. See, prayer changes our perspective and helps bring clarity in the midst of confusion. Clarity in the midst of confusion. He's saying, I want clarity. See, you know what? When people hear the gospel, you see people misunderstanding a lot of things. It's no different in our day than it was in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, they accused Christians of incest because they called each other brother and sister. They accused him of cannibalism because they ate and drank the body and blood of Christ. There was an understanding of it being spiritual figurative sense. And there's always going to be people that do misunderstand. That's why Paul's saying, please, that God would make, help me make it clear Clarity in the midst of confusion. And there are people that we will talk to in our lives that do not understand and pray that God will help you make it clear to them that they might see who Jesus is. You know, the word clear in this text is an aorist subjunctive active. It's an aorist, meaning it's an indefinite moment in time. It's sometime, uh, it, it could happen uh, in the future, but it's active. It, it, the idea is, is that I'm the one that's doing it. It means to make clear, to manifest Paul wants clarity, and that can only happen when we pray. We need to pray. We have to pray. As Keller wrote, Augustine says God is reigning now, but just as light is absent to those who refuse to open their eyes, so it is possible to refuse God's rule. See, we need to pray that God would open their eyes to his preeminence, his lordship, and who he truly is. Do you have someone in mind that you want to pray for? You know what? We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to take this time right now to pray. There's times where I've done this. I mean, when we've talked in the midst of a sermon and God has touched someone's heart and said they want to pray and I was wrong and skipped over it. I want us to stop and pray right now. Okay? You can pray right where you're at. You can pray, lean to someone and pray. You might just pray by yourself. You can come forward and get on your knees right here. And we're going to pray. And we're going to pray that God would help us to be a people of prayer and that God would give us a burden for those who do not yet know who Jesus is. I'm not just talking about who Jesus is. I'm talking about knowing him intimately, having him be preeminent in their lives. So let's, we're just going to be silent, and I'm going to come back up in a little bit, and then we're going we're gonna to close this time in prayer. But I want us to pray. So get with your, get, somebody get up. Get up, get with someone, talk to someone, pray with someone, pray about someone, pray for someone, pray a need that you have. But let's tap into that prayer, power of prayer, and let's get on our knees. Okay, we, are, we need to be more people to get on our knees. I'm not forcing you to get on your knees. If you can't get on your knees, don't worry about it. But if you can, you should. Because we need to, have, to be prostrate before the Lord. The scripture says, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. That is a command. That is an imperative. That we are to kneel and show reverence and, um, before God. So let's take a few moments and pray right now. Go where you're at and pray. to be a people of prayer. Lord, please help us to get a hold of you, to seek your peace and your presence in our lives. Lord, help us to call out to you. Help us not to be silent before you. Lord, you long to speak to us. You long to communicate with us. You long to give us yourself. You long to make your power known in our lives and in our, in our ministries and uh, in, our, in our marriages and in our workplaces and in our schools and in our, our cities and all over the world. Lord, maybe we long for that. And Lord, help us to pray. We pray for, the, pray for our missionaries. We pray for those who are struggling and going into the deep and dark places. Lord, I pray that you might empower them and you might make opportunity for them. And Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that you give them opportunity 
for the glory of your name, that you might make that opportunity known and you help them to make it clear. But Lord, I pray for every single one that there may be an opportunity to talk about your name, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We need to continue in prayer. We need to be praying for one another more often. And you know what? I'm glad we can be silent and reverent before God, but this is something that our our brothers and sisters tell us from uh, different traditions in different countries. It's okay to speak out loud when you're praying, okay? Everybody's so silent. We're recovering. I mean, I don't know. If they think they speak, they're going to just get smacked on the head by God. You know what? It's okay. I I remember we shared a story in here some time ago. uh, A Jim Symbolist church at Brooklyn Tabernacle, and they're talking about prayer meetings. They said it's like a labor and delivery room because of the people that are calling out and crying out to God. So if you want to talk and be loud, you might feel like you're the only one. Other people will start doing it. Okay, if I do it, I got a microphone on. That doesn't work. So if you we do that, call out to God. I'm not saying you have to be loud. Some people like to be reverent and quiet. But it's okay, especially my African brothers, okay? I know that you guys are not quiet all the time in Africa, all right? You guys need to help us. You need to teach us in this regard because we are, we are faltering. Again, not all the time do we have to be loud. I'm not saying it's not. A, you have to be loud as a sign of godliness. That's not it. Um, but uh, we need to make sure that we are comfortable when it does occur. Let's get back to our text for a few moments. We're going to walk through this last part of this very uh, important passage because we're talking about the world may, may knowing. Yes, we're to pray for the work. It is a tool of transformation that God has given to us. We need to tap into that, but that's not all. Let's look back at our text in verse 5. He says, making uh, the second clause here, making the best use of the time. Now, the word time in Greek is kairos, and it means time opportunity. And the word doesn't necessarily mean ticks of the clock, as it mentions a space of time filled with all kinds of possibilities. See, what God is saying to us is that if he wants us to be world changers, then it requires us seizing the moments we have for ministry. Seizing the moment. Carpe diem. Remember Dead Poets Society? Carpe. Carpe diem. Okay, talks about that. The idea is seizing the opportunities that God has, the moments that he divinely places in our days for ministry. And it might be awkward. Be the one to share. Be the one to speak up in the midst of that time. Be the one that's a thermostat, not a temperature gauge. A thermometer, remember we talked about that? There's a difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. A thermometer simply reflects what's going on in the room. The thermostat changes the temperature in the room. Be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Be a thermostat, not a thermometer. So we need to seize these moments. Now, the first of all, he says uh, the word conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. In some versions, it actually has walk. And the word actually is a present imperative active. It's present, meaning it's to be done now. It's an imperative. It's a command active. We are the ones to do it. It means to walk about, to conduct one's life. It is a, a word that is used often, um, how we are to live. So we are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, which refers to those, excuse me, who are not yet believers. Those outside the covenant community of God. In other words, for us to seize the moment involves our conduct. Our conduct. See, if you say that you are a follower of Christ, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, and that he lived and was seen by 40, I mean, for 40 days by over 500 people, then he descended into heaven, and then he sends his spirit to live in us. If you say that you trust in Christ, then your life needs to reflect that truth, does it? What will an out, a person outside the community, 
covenant community of God, if they were to have a video of your life and they would be shown to it, it was a secret video, you didn't know it was being taken, and they were to watch that video, would they be able to ascertain your faith from seeing the video? What would they say? What would they say that you value? How you spend your money? What are your entertainment choices? What websites did you go to? What TV stations did you flip through? What songs are you listening to on the radio? What periodicals are you reading? What are your hobbies? What are your pursuits? What are your ambitions? Can they ascertain and see your faith by your conduct? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, living in such a way that people want Jesus. They want what you have by our conduct. But it's not just about our conduct. It's also about our conversation. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. This is hard. Controlling the tongue is hard for all of us. Our speech is to be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Salt had several uses in the ancient world. Some uh, believe that it, it was, I mean, it was used as a preservative or it could bring flavor, and some think it was one or the other. I actually think it was both. Our conversation should preserve others. It should be also flavorful. Why? So that we might uh, be able to answer each person who has an objection toward Christianity. That's what he says. Be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. So how to answer each person. That's kind of a, a weird construction. It's a weird sentence when you look at it and you say, wait, my, my speech should be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that I might know how to answer. Why would I need, to, if it's seasoned with salt, why do I need to know how to answer? I think a greater explanation of this is found, some clarity helps us understand this verse, is found in Titus chapter 3, verse 7 through 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 7 through 8. That's page 999 in your pew Bible. If you don't have one of those, you're not as familiar with the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you hit Revelation, you go too far. It's in the T's for second, first and second Timothy, or one Timothy, two Timothy, and then you have Titus. If Philemon, then you've gone too far. Okay, so Titus chapter 3, verse 7 through 8 says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that at an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So it's basically saying this, live your life in such a way that people can't criticize Christianity. That's what it's saying right there. Live your life, may your speech be in such a way that people don't look at you and they go, what a jerk. If they're a, if they're a Christian, I don't want what they have. And I, that's happened, by the way, and I'm not going to say who, but I had reports given to me by someone who left our church because they saw one of our people in this room at an event. They didn't know each other. This person, though, knew that person. And how they behaved caused them to want to leave because they saw the speech of this individual. How they were interacting with a crowd of people. And they said, I don't want what they have. I don't want to come to this church because that obviously isn't how, I mean, that's not, if, if that's how the church really is, I don't want to. Someone in our church. That's, that's shameful. It could be any of us, by the way. It could be me. It could be you. I hope not. We all know we fail. We all know we falter. We all know that we've said things we shouldn't have. And I pray that this causes us to reevaluate even our conversation. 
what are you talking about when you're at work, when you're with your friends? Are you gossiping all the time? Telling dirty jokes? Are you swearing? Cussing? Are you putting down and disparaging people? Are you criticizing others all the time? We have to watch our words. All of us have to watch our words, our conversation. See, when we do all of these things, do you know what happens? See, the product of using our conversation and living for the Lord gives us confidence. Confidence. It gives us confidence. See, when we're following Jesus, we have confidence. We don't have to listen to superstition. We don't have to, to listen to hearsay or given in to false accusations. We are confident because we're doing what God has called us to do. We're standing on the Word of God, and the Word of God is our best defense. Our conduct cannot be condemned when we're ordering our lives according to His Word. We feel confident in how we talk to people. When our lives and our words match up, it is a powerful witness to Christ. I remember having people come up to me, and they were thinking they were very spiritual, and they come up to me, and they go, there's some type of sin in your life. Oh, good. I'm glad that God has revealed to you that I have some type of sin in my life. And you know what? Everyone in this room could say that I have a sin that I struggle with in my life. They were using it as a means to get closer to me and as a means of manipulation. But I could honestly say to them, you know what? I do have sin, I'm not, but I'm not going to share it with you. And they're like, well, there's something you struggled with last night. Nope. <laughs> not last night. Maybe the night before, but not last night. But see what I'm saying is people try to manipulate and they try to use even spiritual things to get into your life. But when you're confident in the word of God, you don't have to make apology. You can stand concretely. And say, no, that's not how it is. That's not how it's going to be. When you have people come to you and they say, well, because you follow Jesus, now the Spirit's killed your horse or made your crops fail or caused your car to die or whatever it is, you could say, nope, because God is good. God is good, and that's of the enemy. That's unbelief. We need to focus on what God has for us. And when we do, when we're doing what he has to say, this gives us confidence in God And then we are immune from the attacks of the enemy. This is why I love the football player, Tim Tebow. Now, I'm not going to look at his football prowess per se, but this guy has been a target. Okay? If you remember, he's a a football player. He was born uh, in the Philippines. His father is doing evangelism in the Philippines. Uh, He became a college football player, uh, just amazing college football player. Went to the pros. Everybody criticizes his mechanics, but he wins. But yet, he, he was just so overt and outward about his faith and testifying about Christ all the time. And that sometimes when that happens, and we hear it in the news where someone might say something about Christ and then they get caught doing something evil or wrong, things like that. But uh, Tebow hasn't had that. As a matter of fact, one, one um, news, really low-brow, bad news agency said they would give a million dollars for the woman who could seduce Tim Tebow to, to impugn his character. But you know what? It all drifted away. Why? Because he was resolute and he was confident before God because he knew that, you know what happens? I have Christ. And his conduct and his conversation matched up. Now, I'm not saying he's perfect. He is a a person and he has sin in his life like we all do. Sins that he struggles with. But we have to make sure that we are doing what God wants us to do. And when we do, we have confidence we have confidence. So the purpose for this entire thing, this whole message, is this, that the world may know who Jesus Christ is. See, when we seize these moments for ministry, when we are praying, when we are, when we are utilizing the tools that God has given to us, when we tap into the, the, the power of prayer, the tools of transformation of the scriptures, it, and seize these moments for ministries, ministry, we do so that the world may know who Christ is. 
that Jesus may be made famous. That's why we do this, that the world may know who Christ is. This is the goal, to know Christ, to make him known. We want to see Christ's preeminence spread over the entire world. It's not just something you check off. It's not just a box that you say or an assent that you do verbally and not show by your life. Nope, that is not of what the Scripture says. It shows that we must say by our lives and by our words and reveal that He is our heart's delight and our heart's passion. Remember, just like with Wozniak, the beginning of the Cadillac Dare Greatly campaign, he dared to do something that would benefit the whole world, will we? That's what a world changer is. You want to change the world? There it is. Paul's given it to us. Pray, continue on in prayer, that God would make, make doors open for the word. Offer your life and walk in wisdom toward those who are not yet believers so that they might become believers, that God might reveal and remove the veil from their eyes, that the whole world may know that Jesus is the Christ, the one who gave his life for them, that came from God, Fully God, fully man, God in flesh, taking the hand of God, taking the hand of man in order to save us from our sins. Because the scripture says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that none of us are righteous, no, not one, as the book of Romans says so clearly to us. And that we are all lost apart from Christ, but yet God has given us and sent his son to die on the cross for our sins that we might have new life, forgiveness of him, that we might be saved from the wrath of God and have peace with him. And then he calls us to reach the world for his name. Let's do so. Let's be world changers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We rejoice in what your hands have done. And Lord, I know that there are some who are struggling and they're still trying to figure out how to make sense of this entire uh, walk with you and what that means, the relationship with you, trying to understand who you are, Lord, I pray that you might remove the veil from their eyes, that you might touch hearts and minds to show that you are the Christ. And Lord, for those who, of us who, have, who do know you, Lord, may our, lives, may our lives validate the words of our confession. May the, your transformation validate the words of our confession. Lord, we know that you died to give us life. Set your son for our sins. Lord, may we live according to your word. May our lives be continually an offering of worship. And may we live in such a way that others might see you in us. We pray your blessing on us and help us to be world changers. For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.